0: Richard Jacobs for the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Eric Weiner. He's the author of a book called The Geography of Genius. Um, So it looks to be a very interesting title. So, Eric, welcome. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. Happy to be here, Richard.
0: Yeah, so what is The Geography of Genius about?
1: Uh, It's basically uh, the notion that we've been thinking about genius all wrong. Um, You know, we have these myths surrounding... A word like genius, and I would say myth number one is that geniuses are born. You know, think of uh, Mozart, for instance. We assume that since he was, uh, you know, such a prodigy, you know, playing violin at age three, composing by age seven, surely he was born with these gifts. But you know, that ignores the fact that he was born into a very musical family, in a very musical time, in a very musical place, in you know, Austria of the 18th century. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I really don't think genetics plays as big a role as we think. As we think. Myth number two is that, you know, genius is, uh, is made through hard work. And, you know, again, it's partially true. Just like genetics play a role, hard work plays a role, too. You've probably heard of the 10,000-hour rule, the, the idea that you have to put in at least 10,000 hours' work to achieve mastery of a subject, if not genius level. Right. Uh, but, you know, there, there are lots of hardworking people in North Korea uh, with good genes, but you don't see a lot of geniuses coming out. Um, so, what, what I propose in my book is that there's a third theory of genius that we've largely overlooked, in, and it's that geniuses aren't born or made, but they're, they're grown in the soil, you know, and we sort of ignored the role that environment and that place and that culture plays in the making of a genius.
0: Okay, so, well, I guess there's nature versus nurture, and there's always that eternal argument, but this is, I guess... Well nature of a different, of a different sort, right or is it yeah a I mean, it,
1: it, it's a variation of it, um, but we, we're so enamored of this myth of the the lone genius, you know, as if they just popped up like you know, sort of like shooting stars. like you don't know when's going there might be one in the night sky, but when there is, it's miraculous, and you just have to wait for the next one. but it it doesn't work that way. In fact, if you were to plot the appearance of geniuses uh, throughout history and around the world, Now, you would not see just random points, you know, one in La Paz, Bolivia, and one in London, and and one in uh, New Delhi. You would see um, these groupings, what I call genius clusters. And the fact of the matter is that certain places at certain times have produced just an inordinate number of brilliant minds and good ideas. And what I set out to do on this adventure, and it is partly a travel book, um, is to go back to these places to travel back in time in a way and try to figure out what was in the water in these places and can we bottle it can we are there lessons for us today
0: okay so yeah what have you found you went what kind of places did you go to let's start with that what are some
1: well i I identified seven um from chronologically from ancient athens to silicon valley right and um including, you know, some, some expected places like Renaissance Florence, most people know about that, um, but less expected ones, like Vienna of the uh, turn of the century, around 1900, um, and Hangzhou, China uh, in the 12th and 13th century. And even Calcutta um, in the late uh, 19th, early 20th centuries was, was definitely a place of genius. Um, so yeah, and I, I, I went to these places, because you know I'm a, I'm a place person and I cannot really uh know a subject unless I go to the heart of it and and we still do this today I mean you can look at all the great artwork of the renaissance online but yet people go to Florence and they put up with the long queues at the Uffizi museum and the crowds and the heat um, because they want to see it in person and they want to walk in the the steps of Michelangelo and and Leonardo right. and that's that's what I do combined with an awful lot of time spent in the library and, and researching the subject of geniusology. so
0: what have you find did you get a feeling from the places you went to or was it just like any other place like,
1: well I mean, I mean I they, mean they have a few things in common and a few things not in common um, there's there's not um, it's not an exact recipe if there was an exact recipe for sort of creating one of these genius clusters uh, well I, I wouldn't be talking to you because I'd be on my yacht somewhere in the Mediterranean if I'd figured that one out. Um, but they're more a set of ingredients, I would say, uh, in different proportions. And one thing that almost, almost all of them have in common is that they are cities. Um, if you think about it, uh, all the, you don't hear of many, any geniuses really um, becoming geniuses in, in small towns and rural areas. They may be born there, but eventually, almost always, almost always, they'll move to a city. Um, and you know, why, why cities? Um, I think a couple reasons. One is, uh, simply because that's where the people are. That's where the, that's where the jury is. You know, I really, I, I believe deeply that, that genius is, is a social verdict, you know, that we decide who a genius is. And that's why you see some people like Van Gogh and Bach, who were not that highly regarded in their time because the jury, the people at the time, didn't think they were so hot, but 75, 100 years later, they become geniuses. So you need a city because you need people to say, hey, uh, that guy Richard is really brilliant. His podcast is just total genius. Um, uh, and the second reason is what, um, what researchers call interaction opportunities. Uh, a, a better way of phrasing it is that uh, cities are where ideas go to have sex, uh, that they're interacting with one another. And when you have ideas bumping up against each other and rubbing against each other, and that's as far as I'll go with that metaphor, um, some unexpected and wonderful things happen. You have new compounds forming, uh, new ideas forming. Uh, so in, in a city, you're, you're more likely to encounter ideas outside of your comfort zone and more likely to encounter other people attacking maybe the same problem from a different angle. Uh, and, and it's these interaction opportunities um, combined with some other things, I think that explains why. Why, if it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a, a city to make a genius.
0: I guess you could do similar works on, you know, the geography of violence and the geography of many other things. Since you like places, maybe that would be subjects for future books. You visit places of great strife and well, try to identify why they happen there, etc. I know that's yeah. Exotic. No, I, I
1: what I what I examine is uh, an idea um and in the geography my book geography of bliss i look at different ways that different countries pursue happiness and define happiness and what we can learn from them and um so it is the intersection of place and idea that interests me uh, for me places are the embodiment of ideas um you know you don't you don't just feel love for instance anywhere you feel it for a certain person but also in a certain place um and at a certain time, and we are much more creatures of place than we think, even today in the information age, the digital age. In fact, in a in a strange way, uh, geography matters even more in the digital age than it did before. I mean, it's remarkably persistent, because if you think about it, I mean, Silicon Valley should not exist, right? Here is uh, these people telling us that they're creating these devices, iPhones and and ways of communicating like we're doing right now where you don't you can be anywhere right you can be anywhere um, but yeah but but yet the people who are telling that you, us you can be anywhere the vast majority of them live in one 60 mile stretch of land between San Francisco and San Jose California otherwise known as Silicon Valley so so place um, still very much matters
0: today well it's an old expression that people make the place so I know you've been looking at the geography of genius but maybe most of the context. In which genius develops is invisible to you because it, you know, they weren't the same people around at the same time. and
1: No, I mean, I, yes, obviously, structure. obviously, you know, there was a, a British writer whose name escapes me, who said famously that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And that's very true. And the challenge for a writer like myself uh, is to go to these places, uh, you know, and the Athens of today is very different from the Athens of 400 BC And uh, imagine it as it was back then to look for portholes to the past. Um, And, and it is the confluence of time and place uh, that matters. And you said, it's the people that make the place. Uh, Yes and no. Um, On one level that's true, but it's also the place that makes the people. Um, In other words, it's something about, first of all, the reaction to the land and the topography, you know, in ancient Greece, you had hundreds and hundreds of these city-states that were really like countries. Athens was a city, but it was a city-state, meaning that it really was what we consider a small country today. And you had hundreds of these um, throughout Greece at the time, and they were separated by the mountains and the land and the difficulty of travel. So you had all these micro-cultures sprouting up, like, like hundreds of little petri dishes. And each one sort of excelled at Something different. The Spartans were great at warfare; Uh, the Athenians less so. Um, But they brought us democracy and theater, and and uh, we don't remember the Spartans uh, so much today, do we?
0: Hmm. So, any other uh, interesting things that jumped out at you? Were there particular places you went to that? Well, I would say I would say
1: this about the places: they were surprising. They were surprising in that um, they were not nice places. By that I mean they were not paradise. Um, and if paradise does exist, it's probably the least creative place in the world because you you need some tension uh, to create. And, uh, in fact, you know, Athens, just to use it again as an example at the time, was a, a dirty, smelly place, even by the standards of the day. Edinburgh, uh, during its uh, Age of Enlightenment in the 18th, 19th centuries, was... Um, a pretty dirty, smelly place also, and small, actually, too, and the Scots were great underdogs, you know, I mean, they'd just been conquered by the English, and yet you had this flourishing, where you had Adam Smith, the founder of modern economics, and and David Hume, the great philosopher, and I could go on and on, in this kind of backwater, really, Um, but they had something to prove, they had a chip on their shoulder, which helps, um, and they had they had this, this intermingling of people from different classes. Uh, in a building in, in Edinburgh in the 18th century, you might have people from all kinds of different backgrounds living in the same apartment building. And it's this these kind of interactions of differently-minded people with different ideas that's really important um, because there's a kind of creativity contagion that takes place. Um, if, if you... Live near a creative person, you're more likely to be creative yourself, even if you don't know that person. Which I know sounds weird, but there's a there's a multiplier effect. Um, And once there is a breakthrough in one field, you tend to see breakthroughs in others. I'll give you an example. Let's go to Vienna of 1900. So there, you've got you know, say say you're Sigmund Freud, and you're just some young doctor with some crazy ideas about the unconscious and no one knows you, but you look around you see all these breakthroughs in art um, with Gustav Klimt and in physics and politics. And uh, you think, well, why not my field too? On some level you think that. So there's, there's a kind of uh, contagion in a good way uh, that takes place in these, in in these places.
0: Yeah, I guess it's not just the genius, but what happens in the wake of the genius, maybe in their wake more things sprout up. Maybe it's just the—you know—have you you ever studied, um, like you said, this contagion? You know, like when—you know—I know know it's a very different topic, but a lot of hip hop originated in in New York, you know, in certain various small neighborhoods in in Queens and the Bronx and everything. And it's funny, even certain apartment complexes that just seem to be like an epicenter, for instance, of hip hop. So it's it's weird that certain things are like hyper local and they tend to arise, and then they keep that locality for a long time. It's, It's strange that effect.
1: Right. And it's, it's, it's not that different. I mean, hip hop is a creative art form that sprang out of a particular culture. I mean, it would not have sprung out of Renaissance Florence. And I argue that, you know, if you take one of these hip hop artists and you put them in a different time and place, they're not going to be genius hip hop artists. And if you take Leonardo da Vinci and you plop them in, you know, Brooklyn of the 21st century, uh, he's not going to be the genius that we know and love today. Who knows? Maybe he'd become a hip-hop star. It's possible.
0: Well, I was seeing, you know, like culturally, like I grew up in New York and I saw like, you know, a lot of the the businesses were owned by particular ethnicities and ethnicities cluster, you know. So maybe this is the same type of effect. Like, you know, I've tried, over the past, I don't know, probably eight or 10 years, all the cab drivers seem to be from Ethiopia and Somalia. Mm-hmm. And like I said, historically in New York, you know, all the, Now, Salonzo Korean and all of this was that. Just, I guess this was clustering both, like you said, um, when a field is advancing or ancillary fields are advancing or a
1: culture's there or, I don't know. Yeah, but the thing is, you've got it, you've got, uh, in order for a place in my mind to qualify as a real genius cluster, it's got to be, sparks have to be flying in lots of different directions. So, you know, just like a one crop economy is not a great bet, you know, if, if that all of a sudden, the wheat fields die, you're, you're screwed. Um, likewise, uh, I'm a bit, you know, worried about places, well, like Silicon Valley, which I think is essentially uh, a one crop economy with different strands growing there, but still one crop. Look what happened with Detroit, which, you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s was, was this, this very vibrant city. Um, but it was largely in the car industry and automotive businesses. And, if that goes south, the city went south. Um, but in a lot of these places that I looked at, you had you had artists, you had uh, philosophers, uh, you had scientists, and it makes it more vibrant because they sort of feed off each other, even though they're different fields. But uh, I'll be honest: one thing that worries me today is the increase in, of specialization. That um, the reason we don't see a Renaissance man or woman today. Is because we don't we don't really encourage it. what's rewarded is to know you know more and more about less and less. and that's not the way of the genius. The genius is almost always interdisciplinary to at least some extent. you know Einstein was a physicist but he was well read, he played the violin, played it very well, and often spoke about how if he was stuck on a on an equation he would go play the violin for an hour and this is according to his son and all of a sudden he would uh, he would find the solution that way.
0: Well, and speaking about specialization, I've spoken to a ton of people. I've you know, done over 2,000 podcasts the past three years. And I found that very few people want to speculate outside their field. They'll say, oh, I'm not an expert in that. Or they just won't work. Yeah, I, I think that's,
1: think uh, first First of all, that's a r- ridiculous amount a number of podcasts. That's pretty impressive. Um, so I'll Thank give you. you, okay. So you're, you're prolific, definitely. And that's one thing geniuses have in common is they're prolific. Um, they produce more good stuff and more bad stuff, but just more stuff. Um, but it, but to get to your point, I mean, I think that's, that's a real problem because um, it, it's sort of, you know, there's a book out, I believe, called The Death of Expertise, which on the one hand is going on, but there's also the tyranny of expertise and of specialization. And there's this notion that if you're not an expert, and I'm Doing air quotes right now, but you can't see this because it's a podcast. Um, if you're not an expert on some field, then you have no right to say anything about it, to explore it, to have an opinion of it. And I think that's a huge mistake. And I think one reason we saw you know so much interdisciplinary genius in the past is because you could cross lines. You know, uh, in the 18th century, there wasn't really science. There was natural philosophy which is what today we'd call science and that included mathematics astronomy and everything and now you know especially in academia you know at university campuses you you can't turn left or right two degrees without stepping on another department's toes and being bashed for it and um yeah I mean I I think I think this is this is a real problem
0: So you've run into that too, that people seem to be either afraid or unwilling or unable to speculate outside of their narrow field?
1: Well, I mean, just so I've been a journalist for 20, 30 years and a full-time author for 10 years. So I've interviewed and talked to a lot of people, um, probably even more than the 2,000 you've done. Um, And yeah, and I am always um, wary of people who say, well, you know, that's not my field. I can't really... Or I'm no expert, but um, you know it, it's it's. Uh, I'm more impressed by people who are willing to go out on the limb and willing to step into other into other areas. Um, and I, I think we just like we can self censor ourselves. We when it comes to speech, we can self censor what we think about. We can say, well, I can't really think about physics because I'm not a physicist. You know, I can't even wrestle. I can't even wrestle with those problems. Um, you know, I, I just a book I just finished writing that we published in May is the Socrates express. And it's a fun book about philosophy, which people have a hard time (laughs) wrapping their minds around because philosophy, unfortunately is one of those subjects that people think is just hard and it's for experts. And that's not the way it started. That's not philosophy means one who loves wisdom and we all can love wisdom. And, um, just to go back to ancient Greece one more time, they would, everybody could go to the Agora, the marketplace and, philosophize with socrates or talk science with Democritus, or whoever um and and it was much more wide open
0: well i, I guess yeah, i don't know i guess there's a back and forth like now sure there are people that are afraid to say anything if they're not an expert but then maybe a couple hundred years ago in many societies there was a class system so the thoughts or opinions of let's say the lower class which is be completely discarded because they weren't gentlemen or they weren't uh you know whatever you want to call it so maybe the same thing has been going on just in different ways and i don't know maybe there was a golden era of exploration and philosophy and open talk or maybe there wasn't i don't know
1: no i mean that's i had not thought of that but that that there's they've always been restrictions on who can talk about what you know probably since the first caveman who said you know what do you know about fire you didn't invent fire why are you talking about fire um Or down the road invented fire. He's the expert. I mean, probably been for a long time. And you're right for different reasons, you know, classes or, you know, or you were a a slave or whatever. But if I can just ties into something here. Um, Another ingredient uh, in these places is they, they tend to be crossroads, right? They tend to have, if not open borders, more open borders. And However, you feel about the current debate about immigration, um, the fact is that immigrants are good for creative genius. Um, a disproportionate number of geniuses were immigrants uh, or refugees, or both. Be it Einstein or Victor Hugo, uh, Marie Curie, uh, and today, you know, something like a quarter of all the Nobel prizes uh, are, if not more, are awarded to Americans or awarded to Americans who were not born in this country. Uh, who who immigrated. And I think the reason why, you know, why immigrants, maybe you have a theory, but I have my theory too, about why why immigrants are disproportionately creative geniuses. And, and the, the typical theory to sort of go back to your Korean bodegas in, or Korean, Korean grocery stores in New York uh, is, you know, they're very hardworking. Immigrants are hungry for success, whatever they're yeah. at this right and so that at first people said that explains and i thought about that i thought well that would explain why they maybe become successful or even wealthy but when you're talking about creative genius and that's what i mean here creative breakthroughs you need more than just hard work right you need new fresh ideas and the the immigrant by nature of their experience has been and is exposed to new ideas and they need to then occupy a space that i call insider outsider space they're outsiders but they're inside enough to affect the system. To be an African-American slave in the 16th, 17th, sorry, 17th, 18th century, rather, in this country, you're too far outside the system. You're, you have fresh ideas, maybe, but no one's going to listen to you. Um, and if you're too embedded in the system, if, if you're, you know, captain of the ship, you're not going to rock the boat either. Take someone like Freud. He was an immigrant to Vienna. Um, came from a place called Moravia that's now part of I believe the Czech either the Czech Republic or Slovakia I think Slovakia and don't quote me on that anyway he was an immigrant to Vienna and he was a Jew Um, so he was an outsider in two ways but at the time in the early 20th century he was inside enough that people listened to his ideas and took him seriously and that's like that's the sweet spot I think yeah, I guess
0: you can encapsulate uh, a few factors that lead to genius. Like I would say, one is definitely adversity, but not insurmountable adversity. But you know, enough to toughen you, harden you, and maybe give you the impetus to look for something different or better. And then, like you said, being an immigrant, you know, being in a new place, new culture,
1: right? You know, and everything. bringing and bringing your your old ways too. I mean, you know, I, I like to. And it doesn't mean that you're going to, you know, it's not like so clear that because you're an immigrant, say, from, you know, whatever country you come to, you come to America and you're going to say, well, you know, back in Nigeria or Norway or wherever, this is the way we did it. Um, It's more just shaking things loose. Like if you... We're living in some small town in America, and you had never seen anything but a fork and knife. As far as you're concerned, that's the only way to eat food is with a fork and knife. And a Chinese family moves in next door, and you notice they're using these sticks, chopsticks, to eat their food. And you're like, huh. Now, you're very unlikely to start using chopsticks to eat your food. But on some level, you've been shaken up, and you're thinking, well, if there's a different way of eating my food, maybe there's a different way of composing music or farming the land or whatever it is. Um, so it's, it's what psychologists call a schema violation, which sounds nasty, but isn't. It's just when, when the regular order of things is shaken up a bit, it has this kind of multiplier creative effect. And there's studies that, that show this, you know, they show videos to people of a schema violation, people having pancakes for dinner or making a sandwich backwards order, weird stuff, And then they give them a creative, creative thinking exam and they see this boost in creative thinking just by watching other people do weird stuff.
0: Yeah. And then there's always uh, people's reaction to it, which would color how someone would either, I guess, you know, they might put their genius away. They might, uh, you know, not let it out. if They're in an environment that appears to be very repressive to new and different ideas. I mean, some ideas people like and they think they're cool and quirky. And some, they, you know, they, they hang the person or they burn them at the stake for it. Well, that's why danger, it's, it's too-
1: all about timing. That's why when I say, you know, it genius is a social verdict, that's what I mean. It's like you have the wrong idea at the wrong time and you might either um, be burned at the stake or worse, ignored, you know? Um, so, um, but we don't see it that way. We, we, we have this very romantic idea of genius as sort of, you know, that, Mozart is a good musician, not because people think he's a good musician, but just independently of that. He's just, his music is just good. But what if his music is good the way, um, you know, it's almost like fashion. You know, for a while in the 1970s, people thought really wide ties and bell-bottom jeans and shag carpeting, all this stuff was, was cool and fashionable. And now we think it's silly. Um, Genius actually operates much, much the same way, I think.
0: Did you, are you interested much in the lives of the geniuses themselves or is yeah. it more in how they were shaped?
1: Well, I mean, they... uh, ultimately I was interested in the the lives of the, the sort of biography of the places. Um, but I certainly looked at, um, at their lives. Um, and we talked about adversity. They, they all had some degree of adversity, a hugely disproportionate number lost a parent, usually a father at a young age, um, when they were three, four or five years old, um, I mean, it's a remarkable number, um, and you have to wonder about that—about what what is going on there. And, and geniuses tend to be uh, either an only child or the older child, but often an only child, um, and that's another commonality.
0: I guess they, yeah. Oh, what about when they their immediate family? Do they seem to be affected by them, or not really? And in you know, terms of
1: uh, in terms of exposure, like, um, are they? exposed to a wide breadth of ideas at a young age that seems to make a difference um more than um be having loving parents i, I was it oscar somebody who said um i wish i didn't remember who it was who said the, the worst thing that um that can happen to a, a budding genius is to have t- two loving parents that's the absolute worst thing um yeah it needs to be some tension there. Unfortunately, uh, most parents abide uh, and um, oblige and are not perfect, of course. So there, there's always, you know, I don't, I don't really know anyone who had a perfectly happy childhood. Do you?
0: Oh, of course. But yeah, but I, I see it's, Again, it's, it's a different kind of adversity, you know, not having one parent or both, not having any siblings. It's, I can see how all that would shape someone in a different way.
1: Well, you also enter the adult world younger, but still with the eyes of a child um and you have to compensate for the loss right um and and of course i should also say that if you lose a a parent figure a father father figure in particular at a young age you also might be more prone to mental illness like depression and other problems so it works both ways have
0: you ever looked at uh, like idiot savants i mean it seems like they're involuntary and geniuses are voluntary any any point in looking there
1: well, I, I make a pretty sharp distinction between talent and genius. And an idiot savant may have a particular talent, but I wouldn't call them a genius, not as I defined it. Um, I think the best distinction I've heard is from the, the uh, philosopher Schopenhauer. He said the, that um, talent hits the target no one else can hit. Genius hits the target no one else can see. Um, and I think that is the distinction. So an idiot savant maybe um, can run numbers quickly or do these amazing feats. But, you know, we don't remember them. Um, and, and this is where we often confuse IQ and genius. A, a genius, in my mind, is not someone with a high IQ. Um, you know, there there are plenty of people with members of the Mensa Society with IQs over 200 who you've never heard of and will never hear of. And then there are Nobel Prize winners with lower than average IQs, um, many of them, um, and many with average IQs. Um, so, I, I don't think that um, IQ is, a, is at all really related to the kind of genius that I'm talking about.
0: What about the immediate family members of a genius? You know, their kids, their wives, husbands, et cetera, are they affected or is it just kind of like, you know, yeah, that person was their family member, but it didn't really affect their life
1: much? Well, a lot of unhappy relationships out there. Um, you know, I'm thinking of uh, certainly a social and political genius like Mahatma Gandhi as just one example. Who, um, who had a very rocky relationship with his wife and with his children, um, and admitted he was a lousy father. He said as much, father of the nation, but not a great father to his children. Um, so there's often uh, a price to be paid um, in the family of a genius. Um, disruption, distraction, um, you know, it's, there are exceptions, I suppose, but it seems to be the, they are exceptions.
0: And I guess genius is not heritable. It appears to be, it seems to end with that person and begin with them.
1: It does. There's never been one genius who begot another, never been one genius who gave birth to uh, another genius. Um, Again, not talking high IQ or just, you know, smart like daddy. I'm talking, you know, Einstein's kids were not Einstein. And um, Freud did have a, a child, Anna Freud, who became a psychologist and a pretty good one, but not like her father. Um, So maybe it is just, you know, tough acts to follow. um, But also maybe, you know, the genetics change a bit, of course, but the time and the place also change as well. And that moment where the genius achieved geniushood um, has passed.
0: Do you try to seek out living geniuses and talk to them and interview them and learn from them, or are you looking more at historical ones?
1: I find it's really hard... um, First of all, anyone who says they're a genius is not, just like anyone who says they're a hero. Um, <laughs> um, you never see an interview after someone saves someone from a burning building. They always say, you know, I just did what anyone would have did done, and you know, I'm not a hero. I'd like to see the guy who says, it's remarkable. Nobody would have done what I've done. I'm just – I'm a hero, I tell you. Um, right, yeah. So same thing with geniuses. And, and also, it's – you need um, – who would a question I often ask when I give talks on this subject room for people, I'll say, I just asked the question was, was Steve jobs a genius? Yes or no. So I'll ask you, was Steve jobs a genius?
0: I don't know. I don't think so. I just okay. think he, he just had a, an eye for, you know, for
1: product design, but I don't think so. Tends to split 50 50, unless I'm in Silicon Valley, then it's like 90% of the people say, yes, he was a genius. Um mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, I think it's because it's too soon. Number one, you know, and, um, and look at, look at his field was technology. I mean, can you name a classical composer living today? Who's great. Who's a genius. And why would that be that we have, you know, Steve Jobs as a possible genius, but no classical composers. Some of the classical composers have gotten worse and the technology is better. It's that this is what we honor, you know, and the, the epigraph in my uh, opening quote in my, my book is kind of says it all. It's from Plato. It's what he said, what's honored in a country is cultivated there. And we honor technology. We honor um, not classical music or literature necessarily, but um, what Steve Jobs did and what his successors are doing in Silicon Valley. So if you were to just walk down the street and say, name a current living genius, most people would say, well, Steve Jobs passed away, but they, they might point to Elon Musk as an example, for instance. I think it's too soon to tell. And that's yeah. why, yeah. I mean, I'm definitely interested in, in talking to wise people. And my, my new book out in May is about wisdom. Um, but as far as like pointing to geniuses here and now today, that's tough. I mean, that's we, we need a little bit of distance.
0: Well, I can tell you, you know, sometimes on a given subject, I'll interview 100 different companies or people. And I do find that in any subject, whatever it is, you know, like 95% of the people are okay. They, they're enough to be licensed or competent. And, you know, this won't add up to a hundred, by the way, but 5% right. are, are good. You know, they go above and beyond and they're pretty good at what they do. And then there's that 0.1 or 0.01% that are like amazing at what they do. And I can find them usually if I get into a subject long enough and speak to enough people. And when I speak right. to those people, I mean, and I guess like you're right, society wouldn't say they're geniuses, but they definitely seem to be at least in what they do. And I can hear it pretty early on in the conversation.
1: It's, right, it's and, cool and to it's
0: that.
1: yeah, and it's um, I, I know what you're talking about. I don't think it's uh, genetics, or I don't think they have better genes or work harder than uh, their colleagues necessarily, but that they they see things a bit differently. It's 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 geniuses are not know it alls; they're see it alls, or at least see things differently. Um, and it's that slightly angular vision that makes them stand out, I think. Um, Like, you know, Einstein was not the most knowledgeable physicist of his day. There were physicists who knew more than he did, but they didn't know the way he did. And, um, you know, and unfortunately today, we really are confused. We confuse information with knowledge and knowledge with wisdom, you know, and we think that if you just have more information, this will solve problems. And in fact, more information creates problems often. And even more knowledge doesn't solve problems. Uh, what you need is, is wisdom. And um, yeah, I think we've, we've lost sight of that. Um, the idea that it's not knowing more, but seeing more that matters.
0: Well, I think it's even worse than that. It's like a lot of people are now um, saying, all right, we're going to leave the, the wisdom to AI And AI, I don't think, has any wisdom. And you said, it's the vast accumulation of data, let's say, that it can look at. But it just seems like a lot of fields are saying, oh, AI will solve this, or AI will- Right, and the
1: reason, it's sort of like a natural, I'm just thinking about this now, it's sort of a natural outcome. That attitude is a natural outcome of our belief that wisdom is just a bunch of data. And if the machines can have all that data and process it more quickly, even than a human- then they will be more knowledgeable and even wiser uh, than us. And again, wisdom is, is you know, the discerning use of knowledge. It's not having more knowledge. It's been said that, you know, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. Um, and <laughs> so... You know, we we we've lost this. I'm I'm trying in some small way in my books and in my new book, which I keep mentioning, <laughs> the Socrates Expressions, should be out in May, um, to recover that lost art of philosophy as the love of wisdom. Um, and I think we, you know, we're hungry for it. People are really hungry for wisdom, but and and I think they're confused because they've got these devices called smartphones they're carrying around that and I'm fondling mine right now, which, you know, has all of human knowledge, essentially, you know, in, in, in this little device, which is remarkable. Um, but it's it's not making me any happier really, or any wiser. In fact, it's probably making me less happy. So there you go. Well,
0: very cool, Eric. We covered a lot of great ideas. So we did. Me, uh, yeah. For listeners, let's, so how can they get more of your, knowledge, wisdom, information, whatever you want to call it, the, the amalgamation of all those things. What are some of the books that uh, they can I, go to and where can they get them?
1: Okay, uh, well, my first book was The Geography of Bliss, One Grump Search for the Happiest Places in the World, um, and uh, that is out uh, at your local bookstore. It's been 10 years, but it's still doing quite well, and you if you want to go to Amazon, you can, of course, find it there as well. I wrote a book called Man Seeks God about my flirtations with the divine. And I wrote, of course, The Geography of Genius, Lessons from the World's Most Creative Places. I have a website, ericweinerbooks.com. Follow me on Twitter, eric underscore weiner. And um, yeah, and if I haven't mentioned, I have a new book coming out in May, The Socrates Express, uh, a fun book, I promise, about philosophy.
0: Okay, well, excellent. Rick, it's been really good to
1: talk to you. Yes, we we covered a lot of ground and um, I appreciate your questions.
0: You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.